1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, somewhere around the year 370, Basil of Caesarea preached a sermon in which he related the story of the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. Now, these were 40 soldiers who were part of the 12th Roman Legion. Uh, and they were in Sebaste in modern-day Turkey, and they refused to offer sacrifice to the Emperor Licinius because they instead professed faith in Christ. And so for this crime, they were torn with whips, they were pierced with iron hooks, and finally they were ordered to stand naked on a frozen lake on a very cold night in Turkey. And yet as they went to that lake, they encouraged one another the way you might see soldiers do as they're going into battle or on a military expedition, willingly stripping down to go to the ice and urging one another on, declaring that one bad night will purchase us a happy eternity. As they stood there on the ice, they prayed, Lord, we are 40 engaged in this contest. Grant that 40 may receive crowns of glory. And there was a moment when it seemed that their prayer would not be granted because one of these soldiers uh, buckled. There had been warm baths prepared for them to entice them off the ice and to make sacrifice. And one of these soldiers went to those warm baths. And yet their prayer, in fact, was granted for a sentinel a Roman sentinel overseeing them was converted in seeing their testimony. And he too stripped down and joined them on the ice and died for the name of Christ with them. God granted them that 40 would receive crowns of glory that night. What allowed these men to endure? Well, this may not be what you think of as a fiery trial, but they were prepared for the fiery trial that Peter speaks of here in, the, in verse 12. Now, Peter's audience in his own time, they were not likely facing death. They were facing social ostracism, perhaps loss of employment, um, perhaps loss of family status, perhaps even being disowned, which all of that is hard enough as it is. I'm not diminishing it. And yet, they were facing difficult enough circumstances that even Peter calls them a fiery trial. Uh, if you remember 
from, I forget how many months ago when we talked over chapter 1, Peter refers to these trials the way that fire is tested by gold, or that gold is tested by fire. Now, gold is tested by fire by sticking it in a crucible, sticking a sample of ore in a crucible and adding some other materials, and you heat it up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's quite a hot uh, experience. And so Peter refers to these things as fiery trials that come upon you to test you. Now, this word translated test here in tonight's passage, it's the same word that is, uh, is translated elsewhere as temptation. And it really does have those two meanings. Sometimes it means testing in the sense of proving something's content or worth, but sometimes it means temptation. And yet, it takes on overtones of temptation. It helps us see that Peter's not just speaking of some difficult experience, but the kind of experience that you may go through where you are enticed in some way to turn away from Christ. So the test may be severe, it may be relatively mild, but these tests come to every one of us in our walk of faith. And so you will be granted opportunities to prove your faith when the going gets tough. And God uses these opportunities to demonstrate your character just the same way that one demonstrates the gold content of ore through a fiery ordeal. Now, there's a difference between God's testing and our enemy's temptations. For God tests in the hope that you will pass the test, where our enemy tempts you in the hopes that you will fail. And here we have a summary of what it looks like to undergo this test faithfully. For in verses 12 and 13, Peter refers to your attitude in the test. In 14 through 16, to your name in the test. 17 through 18, the outcome of the test. And finally, in verse 19, the provision of your God in the test. And so we look first at your attitude in the test, keeping an attitude not of surprise or dismay of what you're experiencing, but one of rejoicing. Now, what is surprise? It may seem plain enough, but surprise is a psychological experience. It's Here, Peter is speaking of it negatively, of that negative experience of encountering something unexpected. Uh, This is something that I did to my poor colleague in ministry, Lianne, many times when we worked together in campus ministry. We shared an office. Her office, or her desk faced away from the door, and apparently I have a very light footfall, so uh, about three or four times a week I would walk into the office and greet her, And this normally very calm and composed woman would jump up through the ceiling practically. She did not enjoy the surprise of my presence. She never surprised me because she carried her bundle of keys on a carabiner. And at whatever corner she was coming around, I always knew when she was coming because I would hear the as she walked around. She never surprised me in all those years. Well, just like my dear colleague, never surprising me, it's never strange if I hear those keys. I know she's coming around the corner. But Peter says here that it is not at all strange when you go through trials. It is rather the natural experience of the Christian life. Now, you may expect bliss in this life when you come to faith. 
And to be sure, we do experience a foretaste of heavenly bliss. We experience peace of conscience. We experience the love of God, the knowledge that we are his children, and so on. So we do experience a foretaste of heavenly bliss. But we experience with them trials as a sign that you are, in fact, in Christ. Jesus himself says in John 15 that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so you can be sure that you will face trials in this life for your faith. Now, just as in Peter's day, in Peter's day there were some areas of agreement between Christians and their, uh, their Greco-Roman uh, contemporaries, and Peter seeks to exploit them to secure some degree of hoped-for peace among his people. And yet there are serious areas of disagreement, and they cannot be papered over. And it's just the same here today. We have some things in common, but we have much that is different, and they are not just going to disappear. And so you should expect to come toe-to-toe with the society around you from time to time, more or less frequently depending on the circumstances, depending on what God has for you in his providence. But you don't need to seek them out. They will come for you. It's not a strange thing when they come for you. You should be prepared. Because the trouble with being unprepared is that it makes you think and behave out of character for yourself. But you have been given a new character and a new mindset in Christ. Being surprised often leads us to do strange things for ourselves. But being prepared, we can live the way that we're supposed to. And so think of things like the fruit of the Spirit. These are characteristics Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Things that should characterize all of your Christian life, even when the going gets tough. Fire is saying, works, because gold stays gold, even when you heat it to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And so your faith, even under the trial, must remain unchanged. And if anything, it should be refined and strengthened by the trial as God works through you. So hence you see the need to be prepared, to be unsurprised when trials come. And we see this in Jesus' own example, how he was undergoing such severe suffering that it led to his death. And yet he fully expected it. He anticipated going to the cross. And as he was on his way, he answered Pilate with wisdom and discretion, even on a night with no sleep. As he hung on the cross, he asked for God's mercy on those who murdered him, knowing that they knew not what they did. To the repentant thief, he granted forgiveness and promised that he would be with him in paradise. And above all, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 teaches us, he kept the joy that was awaiting before him so that he could despise the cross and endure the shame, so that he could save for himself a people, sinners like you and me. But Jesus stayed the same under the severest, most unjust trial that has ever been known to man. And that strength is available to you 
through his Holy Spirit. He was able to do it by his strength, and he gives it to you. And knowing the outcome of what is awaiting you, you're able to rejoice in suffering. Because sharing in Christ's sufferings means that you share in all his benefits. And so as we see how his suffering led to his glorification through his resurrection, his exaltation to heaven, his his session with the Father, and his return one day in glory, well, sharing in Christ's sufferings means sharing in these benefits as well. And so it says here to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you suffer because of your allegiance to Christ. And remember that these sufferings bear witness to Christ's sufferings. So Peter says, don't just kind of go along with suffering, but rejoice in them. For it is a privilege to share in his sufferings. And in his sufferings, you find confirmation, or sharing in his sufferings, you find confirmation that you will share in all of the glories that happened to him as well. For you, it says here, will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, it's interesting here that Peter says, rejoice in this life and so far as you uh, share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. Now, an alternative reading might be that you may greatly rejoice. Peter doubles up the uh, declarations of rejoicing. The reward in the life to come is even greater than the experience of rejoicing and suffering now. And so you will find an even greater reward waiting for you. But conversely, if you do not rejoice in suffering with him now, you will not have the pleasure of rejoicing when his glory is revealed for all to see. Remember those words, one bad night will purchase a happy eternity. And in Jesus' own words in Matthew 10, that he who endures to the end will be saved. So imagine, imagine missing out on the signature event in history because you didn't rely on his strength to endure and rejoice in suffering in this life. So as you suffer, keep the end result before you. Remember the blessing that awaits you, a blessing purchased and secured by Christ himself. And so in Christ, you see that you have every reason not to be surprised at trials, but to rejoice and endure when trials come. And so Peter teaches us not only to keep the right attitude in trial, but also to keep the name of Christ as you are tested. Where it says that if you are in blessed, or if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And this means if you are insulted on account of the name of Christ on you, you are blessed. If others find fault with you because you bear the name of Christ, you are blessed because this shows you that you indeed have Christ's name on you. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now what does it mean to be blessed? It means to be fortunate, to be happy, to be privileged. It's a privilege to be mocked for the name of Christ. And you should be proud. 
We see this in the life of Moses, for it says in Hebrews 11 that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had a life ahead of him as a prince of Egypt. All the fabulous riches that were, that were available to the court of Pharaoh in Egypt could have been his. But he chose to be with his people instead. He considered the reproach of Christ. He abased himself in the eyes of his society. And you know well what trials it brought him. But he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. The people in the society around you may call you names, but they can't take Christ away from you and they can't take all his benefits away from you. As it says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And so in this way, God thwarts the insults of those who would deride you for the name of Christ and turns their insults into blessings because that suffering is a sign that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now the world, being hostile to God, hates to see the spirit of glory and of God resting on you. But God loves it. And Peter is alluding here to Isaiah chapter 11, where it refers to the Messiah saying that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of God who rests on Christ your Savior is the same spirit who rests on you who are willing to suffer for Christ. What a gift that is. And what a blessing it is to have that gift confirmed when people deride you on account of Christ. But there's also a severe warning here, for there is no reward for suffering on account of your sins. Peter says that let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, this list is not comprehensive. This is uh, meant to be representative, which you can see in the catch-all term evildoer. But let them not insult you because they can call you a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. <clears throat> and they didn't have bold or italics or underlining in Greek text. But Peter actually sets apart in the way he structures this sentence. He highlights even as a meddler, even as such a small thing as meddling with people. way out of self-righteousness, we sometimes stick our nose where it doesn't belong. And when that happens, Peter is saying, don't go crying, saying that you're being persecuted for Christ. And in fact, that's something that has been an important part of this letter. God teaching us how to avoid unnecessary conflict, and yet also teaching us how to respond when, when that conflict cannot be avoided. And so you should speak up for Christ 
but not make a pest of yourself. You should refuse to participate in sin and yet be gracious as you try to dissuade others from sin. And so you strive to keep your conduct such that these epithets cannot possibly stick to you so that the worst thing that they can call you is you Christian. And with they, if they stick the name of Christ to you, and that's the only thing they can do, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Now, early believers did not, as far as we can see, necessarily call themselves Christians. It appears that this was, in fact, a term that was applied to believers by unbelievers. And it was not actually meant as a very nice thing to call them. So even from the very beginning, the word Christian was meant, we think, as an insult. But it is Christ who determines the nature of his own name. And so no matter how it is intended, being called by Christ's name is a tremendous compliment. And so when somebody calls you, you Christian, you can stick out your chest and say, that's right. He is great and we are small. It is much better even to be called by his name than by your own. When Polycarp of Smyrna was waiting to be burned at the stake. He was given one last opportunity to turn away from Christ. And what did he say? 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And as he was burned, he prayed that he may be received by the Lord as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. In the 20th century, you think of Armando Valladares, who was a political prisoner in Cuba, and he reported in his memoirs that the Christians who opposed Castro's regime would go to the firing squad shouting, Long live Christ the King. And they scared their firing squad so badly that after a few times they had to stuff gags in their mouths before executing them so that they could shoot them in peace. And so you keep a steady attitude in the test. You keep the name of Christ and the test on you. But finally, remember the outcome of the test. For when you remain faithful despite persecution, you prove that when Christ's glory is revealed and the final judgment comes, you will stand by faith in him. For judgment is beginning now in the house of God. And what this means, it doesn't mean that God is bringing down his wrath on those in the household of God. But it means that even now, through trial, God is separating those who have faith from those who have none. Now, the Old Testament records repeatedly that God's judgment will begin in God's city and even in his temple. Now, in most cases, this refers to God pouring out his wrath on those who are not faithful to him, although that brings with it the salvation of the faithful. But Malachi chapter 3 stands out for this Old Testament theme, for it says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The Lord is coming to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. And so when you stand in his strength, you experience that as a foretaste. You experience what it will mean to stand when he comes to judge the world. So being a Christian does not at all mean that your misdeeds are just passed over, that you're some teacher's pet with God, able to do whatever you feel like as long as he's not watching. You can't get away with what you like just because you're God's favorite. For all people, including believers, will stand before the judgment seat of God, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10. God will divide all his people based on whether they have faith in Christ or not. But in this life, true and false believers will make themselves plain by their conduct under trial. And so when you remain faithful to Christ under trial, that is a great encouragement because it shows that you have faith that he can save you and that man cannot save you. That you will not be saved by trying to appease those who would mock you. That you are not saved by any righteousness that is in yourself. But that you are saved only through faith in Christ who died for you. So preach the gospel to yourself consistently. Reflect on all that Christ has done for you. He has saved you, and only he can save you. And if you truly believe these things, you will stand up to persecution, and you will stand in the day of judgment. Now, judgment is coming for the household of God, and it is coming for unbelievers too. You may be familiar with Psalm 73, where Asaph records, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But then he, towards in the last section of his psalm, what does he say? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in a slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. Judgment may begin in the household of God. It may be a severe test to stand in faith. But unbelievers will face a much worse fate than in judgment than believers do under testing. Now Peter here cites the Greek version of Proverbs 13.31. If the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It was hard to save the righteous. For it cost Christ his very life. And being saved by faith in him, it is still hard to endure in faithfulness. It is hard to arrive safe at the final judgment. But you have so many advantages over the unbeliever, even so. You, by faith, have the blood of Christ that washes you clean so you can stand before God. He has given you the mind of Christ so that you have the ability to stand firm under persecution. He has given you the spirit of Christ, giving you the strength to endure. The ungodly have no such advantages from God. And so the fate of the faithful will be glorious, but the fate of the ungodly will be horrifying. 
And so you face testing in this life. And God calls you to keep, keep the proper attitude in the test. Be ready. Not be, do not be surprised. Take the name of Christ upon you in the test. Remember the outcome of the test. And finally, entrust yourself to God in the test. For there is only one way to be delivered through persecution. And that is to entrust yourself to God as you suffer according to God's will. Remembering that you suffer according to his will, that you suffer uh, not only in his providence, in his care for you, but also suffering as you go about walking in God's will, as you, so that you suffer for his name alone in the test. And yet remember that God in his providence always looks out for you in the midst of suffering, that he cares for you, and that he will not let you be overcome. And that you can entrust yourself to him as your faithful creator. God is the one who made you. God is the one who sustains you and cares for you. God is the one who brought you to faith in Christ. It's easy to entrust yourself to God when times are good. And yet, more difficult, isn't it, to entrust yourself to him when times are hard. But where else will you go? Where else will you find the strength? Where else will you find the care that you need to endure? And remember that Jesus himself entrusted himself to God who judges justly. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. But by contrast, giving in to your persecutors is entrusting yourself to them and forsaking God. And finally, God gives you power to do good. For God calls you to innocence in your suffering. If you suffer for your evil works, you're on your own in that sense, although God is using them to refine you. God is, dis, will discipline you through them. And so he cares for you. But he calls you to faithfulness and suffering. So he calls you to keep doing good even when things are not going well. But he gives you the power to do it as a gift. And as you take hold of this power, which is given to you by God as a gift, he promises that he will cause you to stand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us, that you give us the strength to stand. And that we do not earn it at all. We couldn't possibly earn it. For in our sins we are on our own. Father, truly you are faithful. You keep us secure no matter what circumstances that we face. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the faith to see it and to believe it. Give us the faith to trust in you. And Father, we look forward to the day when we will stand in the judgment and we will join you in the glory, in rejoicing in the glory of Christ to come. In his name we pray. Amen.